Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We have, of course, Rosa Brooks, she of the institutions and organizations. What is it? The organ- I'm not telling you the Associate Dean for Organisms, and (laughs) and looking like she's coming to us from her office. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, thank you, David. I I would prefer to remain a woman of mystery. You are seven, eight years into doing this, and you remain. (laughs) No one has any idea who I am. (laughs) Why am I here? (laughs) Exactly. Also coming to us from Washington, D.C., we have the man that my uh, sister who watched the entire Queen's funeral on MSNBC called MSNBC's Man with an Accent. <laughs> I've still got the accent. I'm doing my best to, to round it off. Yeah, well, no, it's it's beautiful. But we, unlike MSNBC, we spent big. We have not one man with an accent. We have two men with an accent here because we also are joined, of course, by our friend, publisher at Public Affairs Books, Clive Priddle. Where are you, Clive? Uh, in New York. Very nice to be with you, David. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining. And so we're going to talk and we'll use the funeral of the Queen as a jumping off point. And, you know, there, there were many points of watching it that, that I think I wanted to jump off. But Ed, you, you were there commenting on things. Was there any takeaway from all of this that you think was more than just commentary on a celebrity funeral? I mean, as you alluded, um, David, I, I've been doing too much um, royal commentary, mostly on MSNBC, but also on Indian television today. <laughs> We're taking a very different approach, by the way, to the extremely respectful, I'd say, I mean, almost sort of belying your own traditions, American broadcasting. I, I've been quite stunned, and maybe that's another conversation to have, but by the blanket wall-to-wall coverage on American TV. And so... I feel like I've said everything there is possible to say about, including things I know nothing about, like I was being asked. So the coffin is now moving through the Wellington Arch. What's the significance of that? I'm afraid I'm not a historian of monumental London. 
And I don't really know, but I do remember that the Duke of Wellington's address was once number one London. And so it was very easy to get the mail delivered because it was number one London. I just found myself flummoxed by some of the questions. Um, I mean, I'm much more, I'm much more comfortable in saying that I think we will judge whether this royalty is going to slim down as it needs to, particularly in this time of austerity. And we have a winter of, of, of economic contraction for middle-class households by the scale, large or small, of the coronation next year. And if it's you know, of the equivalent scale to his mother's in 1953, I suspect that will be a bad thing. If it's sort of closer to the bourgeois bicycling monarchies of Scandinavia, then I, I think that would be a good thing. There was an understandable outpouring of affection and respect for Queen Elizabeth, which I share entirely. Charles doesn't inherit that. He inherits the throne, but he doesn't inherit any of the public sentiment. And he's going to be careful not to mess this up, is my view. So, Clive, Ed is obviously recommending that the coronation be done as something like Britain's Got a King, starring Simon Cowell, one-hour special. Where we... No. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Clive, what did you take away from this that may actually have been of some substance? Well, so I, I thought, thought it was interesting to talk about the funeral as a piece of staging, as a piece of theatre, without meaning to be disrespectful to not only the, the, the dead queen uh, and her family, and indeed the many people who feel very emotionally caught up in that. But, you know, I think the, the one thing that we as outsiders can say about this is it is an extraordinary piece of theatre, public theatre. Uh, it, uh, it has many resonances, many fascinating little corners, which uh, I think Ed's been talking about. And generally speaking, I think the royal family must feel it's done a very good job. Of course, it isn't the royal family themselves who arranges all this. They have a vast number of people over many, many years who've been doing it. But let's face it, this could have gone badly wrong in many, many ways. And so one of the things that I think has been impressive is that, firstly, they've moved much more expeditiously than royals would have done in the past. The queen was dead. And of course, it is traditional to proclaim the new king. But my goodness, we knew it everywhere immediately. There was not a shadow of a doubt that Charles was immediately king, we were told, not merely proclaimed king, but that he was king, just in case anybody was wondering whether there was a small Republican opportunity that was squashed very fast. And then Charles did his bit by naming his son, the Prince of Wales, pretty much within 24 hours. Again, very, very fast, unprecedented, I think, not necessary but very clear that the royal family is closing the gaps here, wanting to make sure that everything is smooth and secure when it comes to succession. And I believe that was one of the rationalizations for why the very young Prince George and his sister went to the Queen's funeral today was because the royal family want to show the public that there is a long dynastic succession ahead. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of fun to be had in observing the theatrics of this, observing the symbolism and the, and, and the, the political plays, which is why it seems to me it's a perfect subject for deep state radio. Exactly. Well, Rosa, I'm sure the first thing you thought of was listening to what I've just said, that the British have avoided a constitutional crisis. I know that that's the kind of thing that you look at these things for, or was it the Corgis? Oh, I was mostly focused on the Corgis. Um, I want to actually answer your earlier question, David. You know, what, if anything, is there in all of this that that matters beyond, you know, celebrity gossip and celebrity funerals and, and sort of celebrity culture on, on full display? 
And, and I do think it's both in the U.S. in light of our recent constitutional crises and quasi-constitutional crises and, and around the globe, you know, it, it has sparked some interesting discussions about what is the role of monarchies? Do we think they're just completely useless? How, how strange it is that we still have them in quite a number of countries. What does it mean to be to be a constitutional monarchy? You know, what, what does it mean to be restrained by law? You know, what does it mean to be independent? How do we reckon with the past, past of colonialism, past of British imperialism? So I think it's insofar as it sort of sparked some of those conversations again, that's that's obviously not a bad thing. I mean, we spoke last week, Ed, and I think you said you doubted that this was really going to change anything that, you know, that maybe a few, you know, small Caribbean nations would decide to formally shrug off the monarchy, but they probably would be doing that anyway in the next 10 or 15 years. So it's, and, you know, does it really matter? You know, on some level, no, it, I suppose it doesn't, but, but on another level, just the, just the having that conversation again, taking things that are taken for granted and, and having a moment where everybody gets to say, hey, wait, does this make sense? Is never a bad thing. So let's pick up on that, Ed. I was watching it, and I approached these things with the kind of skepticism of small-R Republicans everywhere, saying, you know, we don't, need, we don't need monarchies. In fact, they're anachronism. But somehow countries need events that remind them that their countries, at least if you believe in the idea that people should be organized in countries, what their identity is, what their heritage is, they communicate to the world who they are. And, and countries do this in different ways. But in some ways, the existence of constitutional monarchies is designed to essentially be a repository of national identity. And, you know, as cynical as one might be about these things, or as thoughtfully critical as one might be about these things, several of the countries of the world that are among the most sophisticated in their views of society and high functioning, including not just the UK, which I do not know if I include in the high functioning group, but Holland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, they have constitutional monarchies and there seems to be some reason for it. So did any of that sort of well up in your thinking of, as you watched this? I think one of the things that I sort of tried gently to correct, and I know it's a mistake as often made on BBC or Sky TV as it is, you know, here, is the idea that what we're watching is a timeless, changeless set of rituals that stretch back hundreds or more than a thousand years. And this is, of course, complete nonsense. These are continually invented and reinvented traditions. And most of what we saw today dates back to Victoria's funeral of 1901. It just didn't happen like this before. And we've discussed that, the invention of tradition. The tradition there is adapting. And I think it's extremely important for any constitutional monarchy to adapt, precisely because, you know, they are um, anachronistic. And that's why, you know, the Meghan Harry thing is so potentially damaging in a multiracial Britain. It's also why the Prince Andrew thing, he must be kept out of sight permanently and not readmitted to any taxpayer-funded royal activities, no public duties, because this is unacceptable in any society and the monarchy has to represent that society. So I think 
the adaptability of constitutional monarch is built into being a constitutional monarch. They know how the only power they have is to symbolize change. And I think that the British monarchy under Elizabeth got quite skilled at that. I think the Scandies, the Dutch, even the Spanish, you know, who had a more ruptured um, recent history, have shown that monarchs, monarchies are in general very attuned to this. But I think as a second point, I was reading an extract from the memoirs of Clement Attlee, Britain's first post-war prime minister, Labour prime minister who built really the National Health Service and the modern British welfare state. And he was a great prime minister, left his mark. And he was saying, as a socialist, and he was very much a socialist, that he appreciated the monarchy because people could invest their sort of symbolic national identity in a leader who was powerless. And he felt that the country's more prone to Führers and Il Duches were no accident, by no accident, non-monarchies, that if you absorb that sort of national will in essentially a, a pretty impotent symbol of a constitutional monarchy, you draw some of the potential nationalist poison from an alternative sort of Führer kind of politics. And I think Attlee was a very wise observer and not at all a natural monarchist. I think that was a very astute observation. I think that's an astute observation too. And Clive, I assume you regularly turn to the memoirs of Clement Attlee, as one does. But there is a void, right? A country wants to be led, wants to think highly of itself, want people want to feel strong, they want to have a sense of identity. And if national institutions grow weak or ineffective, they may seek that someplace else or from people who will place themselves into the role of filling that void. And for a lot of Americans right now, you've got, you know, you had this horrific Trump rally in Ohio this weekend where they're descending into almost a, an exact replay of fascist Nuremberg rallies of, you know, Hitler's rise, except the crowds were much smaller, thankfully, but salutes and, and music and, you know, Trump essentially announcing to everybody, you know, he assumes if he gets reelected and the Republicans get reelected, that they will place him above the law, that he won't be convicted of anything. Clearly, these people are missing something in their perception of this country to want to have it filled with Donald Trump. Does that connect together for you? Is there a link between QAnon mysticism and, and royalty mysticism? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Everybody wants to believe in something that's a little bit beyond themselves. I was struck by the extent to which Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish Parliament, has been assiduous to say how much she loves the Queen. And of course, Scottish independence, which, uh, which is her political platform, requires there to be not too much change too soon. Uh, Scottish independence as a notion itself is more than enough change for most Scots. And the one thing that she was counting on was keeping the Queen as the head of state. So she is presenting herself as a you know, nailed-on monarchist at the same time as she's also wanting to be independent from other elements of the United Kingdom. This could be said to be either deeply cynical or hypocritical or just nonsensical, but actually she's doing it for very good political purposes. She needs a solid monarchy in order to have an independent polity in Scotland, which I think is what's so fascinating about this whole thing is that you see people both using this event for their own purposes and being used by it. I want to take issue with one thing that Ed said, if I may. 
I think he's absolutely right about many of the traditions being since uh, the era of Victoria. And by the way, Victoria's funeral was the first, really the first global media event because it came so soon after the event of the Telegraph that it was actually reported more or less live, more or less everywhere because of the extent of the British Empire at the time. So we've had another global media royal funeral. But the problem where I think for the royal family comes not with that sort of tradition, not with the gun carriages and, you know, whether you should go from Westminster to St. George's Chapel. I think it comes with the money. And the money has been gathering for a long time. I believe the first royal estates predate William the Conqueror, and they have been accumulating pretty much ever since. And they're vast. Charles has inherited nine palaces. It's hard to see why a 73-year-old man really needs nine palaces. It's hard to see why a nation really needs nine palaces. It's going to stick in the craw for a lot of people that the new Prince of Wales is the richest landowner, single individual landowner, private landowner in the country uh, at a stroke, merely because he is the Prince of Wales. So some of these things, some of these, these accumulations of monarchy, I think are not going to feel quite so good as perhaps it seems at the moment whilst we're still in the middle of the mourning period. And I think there's going to be considerable scrutiny, as Ed pointed out. We're going to go through Britain, an age of austerity for a lot of people. Those, those palaces are going to look worse and worse. And it is interest, it'll be interesting to see whether Charles and William actually give them up, as they should, many of them. And so I think there's a reckoning still to come. And I think the one mistake that the monarchy may have made, actually, in this whole funeral process is not to accelerate the coronation. I think if Charles was crowned on Wednesday, everybody would be fully behind him. A lot can change in a year or however long it takes them to stage the coronation. They're not going to be able to replicate what we've just seen. The life of the Queen and the role of British royalty is, is not a subject to which I have dedicated a, a great deal of attention over the years. So I, I, bow, I bow in deference to, to Ed and Clive's greater expertise. I, the one thing I, I, I was thinking about the question that Ed raised initially and that, that Clive has touched on a little bit, what does it mean that this was such a big deal in the United States? And I, I was thinking two very positive things I think the Queen represented, and there are lots of negative things such as colonialism, but, but the, the two very positive things, one was a commitment to service. She did not take the money and go to wild parties. I mean, imagine her life. I can't imagine the the drudgery and tedium of the life of Queen Elizabeth II, you know, that she, she did embody a sense of duty, I think, and service to some idea that was larger than herself. Unlike some of the younger royals, she very clearly symbolized for people. And in fact, her own life appears to have truly been a life of genuine service where it wasn't about her. It wasn't about whether this was fun. It wasn't about whether this was interesting. It wasn't about parties or drugs or whatever, fancy clothes. It was very much about doing her duty as she understood it by the people. The other thing I think she, she embodied was the, the notion that there can be some sense of national identity above partisan politics, you know, that she, she, meet, she met with every prime minister. And if she liked some of them less than others, she was pretty good at not showing that, right? She understood it to be her job to live that life of service in a way that was beyond partisanship. And, and I do wonder whether part of the fascination 
with her reign that has been triggered by her death may be a kind of a yearning in this country too, this country maybe especially, for the idea that there exists some space that is beyond, that is about service to the service to the nation and that is beyond partisan politics. I mean, it's something I think there's been a lot of skepticism in this country about whether whether such a thing does exist, whether such a thing can exist. And part of our fascination with, with this may, may be a, a, a yearning for that and a hope that it is still possible. And that sort of contra, the we're so divided, you know, Trump is going to take over everything and it will be fascism, which obviously I, I agree could happen. But that even many of the people who much of the time are themselves wrapped up in partisanship have a little bit of a yearning for a place beyond that. Let's talk a little bit about the historical role of this past queen. As undoubtedly you taught me at some point in one of our sessions on, on England, the first king of the United England was considered to be, I guess, Ethelstan, Alfred the Great, of course, brought together Wessex and Mercia. Um, how am I doing so far? Have you been re-watching Vikings? <laughs> yeah. I've never watched that, but I probably should. There was a period in there, by the way, but after Ethelstan and before we get to William the Conqueror, where, of course, you had Canute and you had the North Sea Kingdom, where the kingdom that included England also included Denmark and part of Scandinavia. And so it's all been about sort of accumulation of empire and Alfred the Great for doing this thing where he sort of negotiated something between Wessex and, and Mercia ended up being called the Great 700 years later. He, he wasn't called it until the 1600s, right? But then in the 1600s, they called him the Great. Now, I was listening, I was watching all this, and they were like, well, this is Elizabeth the Great. And I was thinking, okay, this a little premature, as were some of the stories I saw that she should be made a saint. Okay, this seemed kind of quick in the middle of the funeral. But but when you think about her reign, I suppose one could argue that the, the, the thing that she did was maintain the dignity of the office as the empire crumbled. You know, and you look back at the 70 years and, and go back a couple of years before that, because the India left a couple of years before she became queen. But if you look at that period, in the history of the United Kingdom and the history of England, this has been sort of the most rapid shrinking of the realm since those early days. And, and you know, you talk about Nicola Sturgeon, it could continue fairly rapidly. The Commonwealth could shrink, the, the, the United Kingdom could lose Scotland or Wales. Isn't calling her the great a little bit premature and a little bit missing the point here? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it was actually, I mean, to add to the case against it, um, Boris Johnson's idea. If it's Boris Johnson's idea, you know, that's two strikes down already. The reign of Elizabeth II is inevitably compared to the reign of Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I was, of course, still inheriting the divine right of kings and was autocrat of England, not of Britain, didn't exist then. But neither did empire. Empire really began with the late Tudors. And our idea of monarchy, by the way, sort of begins with the Plantagenets in 1066. The rest is sort of, even though it's historic, um, you know, the Viking era and the era of Wessex and the various Northumberland, the various different kingdoms, Cumbria, are sort of almost sort of part of mythology or treated as part of, of myth mythology. So we begin with the foreigners, in fact. 
we were given the Normans, the French, uh, you know, the Welsh with the Tudors, then the Germans pretty much ever since, as the English, the sort of unbroken tradition. But if you, if you think about her reign and why people might be sort of thinking of her as great, I think it's partly an expression of the longevity of what she spanned. I mean, it struck me today, and I checked it on population chart, that the population of the world was 2 billion in 1926 when she was born. And the TV audience for today's funeral was estimated at 2.5 billion. So there were more people watching our funeral than lived on this planet when she was born. And that is a measure of staying power, of longevity. And so the globe was roughly one quarter red, which is sort of the color of British Empire on most of the, the globes, the maps that you know people grew up with before I was born, and even some of them still existed in my young years. And it's now you know, down to whatever it is, 2% of the world's surface, unless you include, as the royal family does, Canada and Australia as realms. But you know, that's just purely a technical thing. So we're down to about 2% of the world's surface, which was roughly where it was when Elizabeth I was queen. So I suppose the reason why it's being proposed is because she managed to keep this institution intact and her country united, relatively speaking, behind uh, the symbol of monarchy, in spite of what, if anybody had been told this was the going to be the history of the next 96 years in 1926, they would have thought would have been a catastrophe. I think perhaps most of us nowadays would see it as a very essential, necessary thing that happened. And that the Queen somehow managed to give the impression she was with those changes and she welcomed, and I think this was genuine, the multicultural country that Britain had become. And that takes quite some skill without being able to offer an opinion, for that to be what you symbolize takes quite a lot of skill and takes quite a lot of sincerity, I think. Yeah, David, I I wanted to pick up um, your question as well, if I may. I think in a personal way, that's not necessarily something you can lay at this Queen's door. She's had uh, 15 prime ministers, as everybody knows. I think not one of them has recommended more or increased colonialism, and indeed many of them have been explicit in recommending decolonialization. So she has been a queen at a time of decolonialization. This has been good for the world and good for Britain. We may not have done it well. There are all kinds of issues about you know, the, the legacy of the period before that not having been satisfactorily addressed. But she's just the head of state, and at no point has she stepped out of line on the broad drift of history, which has been to let colonies go back to being governed by the way they want to be governed. And I think that is still the position of of, uh, Charles and William. And I think she does deserve credit for that. Had she been born a generation earlier, of course, you know, she would have been, you know, sitting next to a fascist at dinner regularly in the palace. She was born in the post-World War II era, at least in terms of her public presence. So she didn't get caught up in that. She could have got colonialism wrong. She could have been a queen who expressed the sort of clingy love for old imperial ways. She never did that. So whilst I think you could say that the reign, it, 70 years, how much do we have to show for it? Was it, was it really great in every level? Maybe not. But um, I think she can and should get credit for not misjudging some of the big currents of history. She got some things wrong, 
But that one, I don't think you can pin on her at all. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I just think the question is whether you call her Elizabeth the Great or Elizabeth the Magnanimous or Elizabeth the Go with the Flow or Go with the Flow Liz or something like that, which would be a little bit more appropriate for this. This is normally where we take a little bit of a break in the program. We say goodbye to the folks in the general public who are not members, and we encourage them to become members. That's you. If you're not a member, I mean you. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. Click on membership, $5 a month. You get to listen to all of all of the podcasts. And there are lots of podcasts talking about lots of subjects, not just this subject. So go there and join us. And then you can listen in on everything. The rest of you are members. Stand by. We'll be right back. 